I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, as Venerable Kusala said, thank you all for being here. I, I was expecting actually a smaller crowd. I figured everyone would be at the gym today in anticipation of Thanksgiving. <laughs> Luckily, none of us here need any more exercise, right? Uh, let's see, uh, where do I start? Well, it's probably not news to anyone here that I've been very busy lately. You know, I haven't been able to spend as much time here as I usually like. You know, for a, long, for a good chunk of time there, I was a fixture here every weekend, and then now, now I'm really only here when I'm talking, and I'm going to try to fix that, but I've been busy with school. I've been working on my, on my degree. It's a three-year program. At the end of it, hopefully, I'll be a uh, marriage and family therapist. And so what that means is that my life these days is pretty much home and then school and then home and then school, which means that for everyone here, a lot of my talks are inspired either by something that happened at home or in school. This one's kind of both in that the talk is based on something I saw on Facebook while at home and some reading I did in one of my textbooks at school. Now the thing I saw on Facebook was a, a cartoon in, in several panels. In fact, it was Venerable Kusala who, who shared it and then I think I shared it afterward. And it shows a, a man out in nature and you see the, the trees and and you see a, a lake, and he's, he's there on, on this outcrop of stone, not, not too dissimilar to like the Lion King, and kind of an outcrop like that. And he has his hands up to the sky, and there's clouds. And he asks, God, please tell me, is there any meaning to life? And the clouds start to part, the light shines through, doves descend, carrying a banner that they unfurl with letters in bold, no. And so when I saw that, I, I thought it was funny. It was, it's very existential. And it reminded me of what I've been learning in one of my classes, which is called theories. So as someone new to therapy in grad school, one of the classes I'm taking is one in which we talk about theories in terms of therapy, psychotherapy, various modalities that exist that people use. And I thought going into it, because of my background in Buddhism, I'd be most drawn to behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy because those are the ones that have really been spearheading a lot of the mindfulness-based therapies, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction and, and, and various techniques like that. They've been incorporating aspects of Buddhism into therapy. But as it turns out, there's also this existential therapy that has this deep foundation in Western existential philosophy. I didn't think that that would appeal to me, and yet, oddly, it has, and I see a lot of similarities between existential therapy and the way we approach the human experience within Buddhism. Now, existential philosophy is something altogether different from therapy, that's something that I actually wasn't all that interested in when I first started studying existential philosophy in university. Mostly because my understanding of existential philosophy was a lot of really de depressed Europeans in coffee shops talking about how everything sucks. 
And then after my degree, in which I studied all of Western philosophy, I, I did take some classes in existential philosophy, I had a more nuanced understanding, but it still was pretty much some depressed Europeans in coffee shops saying things like God is dead and hell is other people and things like that, you know, just real cheerful stuff that for me wasn't all that appealing. But something happens when you take existential philosophy and then apply it in a therapeutic sense. What you find are certain things that seem very similar to Buddhism in, in how we approach being human. Now, in my textbook, they have these various propositions that existentialists have about the human experience. And so I thought what I would do today is take some of the ones out of the textbook that I've been reading and look at them not from an existential philosopher point of view, but actually look at them the way a Buddhist thinks about these concepts. And they're not actually all that different. Now, the, the first proposition that I will share with you from the textbook is that we have the capacity for self-awareness. I think that this is very, very Buddhist because it's one of the things that we count on in Buddhism. That if we ever intend to get rid of delusion and ignorance, we have to increase our capacity for self-awareness, that that's where understanding comes from. Now, that's easier said than done. We can talk about self-awareness, but what we realize not only in a cognitive sense when studying you know, the brain, but also just in our own day-to-day -day experience, how much do we live on autopilot? How much of our day-to-day -day existence happens without us really being aware that it's happening? I would say that the Buddhist approach to increased self-awareness is what we call meditation, what we call mindfulness, what we call concentration. When I think about that, it doesn't sound very existential, but existential philosophers have their own kind of meditation that they do. It does involve coffee shops, it does involve being kind of depressed, but it also involves looking at your life, not only in the scope of yourself, but looking in, in the scope of others and what's universally experienced. That's one thing that we find in Buddhism as well, that these things that we think are individual to us are part of universal experience. When we experience any type of perception, when we experience any type of sensation, we often think only in terms of, of our own experience and not how that is shared across all sentient beings. And I bring this up because quite beautifully, when we grow in self-awareness, we not only gain the capacity to understand ourselves, but to understand others. Not only understand our greed, but the greed of others. The, not only our anger, but the anger of others. And then conversely, we understand our generosity and the generosity of others. One of the things that I've, I've talked about in, in previous talks and in conversations with others is the, uh, the connection between wisdom and compassion. Some people think that they're different. 
and we have to go about different ways of cultivating them. Some people focus very deeply on, on very existential, philosophical, very difficult concepts, and others focus more on generating metta or loving kindness and, and really delve deep into, into feelings of love and try to extend them outward. And they see the, those things as, as different activities. And yet for me, when I've approached both practices, I see them as being very much the same process. A growing in awareness, a growing in understanding that when we look truly at another being, we find compassion, we find love, we find uh, empathetic joy, we find equanimity there when we truly see the other. In fact, that ties into another existential concept of the, the I-thou relationship. Now, most of us, I think this was popularized by, like, I think it was Martin Buber, who he talked about the I-thou relationship versus the I-it relationship. Generally, the way we live, when we live on autopilot, is that we think about how things are affecting us. We think about how things are happening to us without recognizing our own autonomy, our own ability to affect change, and also not thinking about the internal world of others. In that the complex thoughts that we have, the complex feelings we have, are also in every individual being. My last talk, I talked about how, indeed, we are all snowflakes, you know. But snowflakes, even though they're very individual, we all recognize them as snowflakes when we see them. There is some kind of universality there. There's some type of thing that we can connect to and see and recognize in the other. Not as it, but as thou. Something that is as filled with all sorts of grandness, all sorts of amazing feelings and perceptions, as we have. And when we make those kind of connections with others, which is a kind of understanding, which is a, a growing in self-awareness, we find also love and compassion because it's understanding, which is, I think, the bedrock, the foundation of compassion. Now, another proposition that we find in existential therapy is freedom and responsibility. Now, I think it was... Victor Frankl, who, when he talked about the Statue of Liberty, he said, well, that's not quite right. You know, we have liberty, great, but we also have responsibility. So he said, you know what? I think on the West Coast, we should have another statue, the Statue of Responsibility. Because really, freedom and responsibility are the same. And again, it seems very existential to talk about freedom and responsibility. It doesn't on the onset sound very Buddhist to talk about freedom and responsibility. And yet, in Buddhism, our liberation, our salvation, is based directly in our freedom and our responsibility. In that, we, as sentient beings, have the ability to change, to change our karma, to change our mindset, to change our worldview to grow in understanding, to grow in wisdom, that we can take on the training of the Eightfold Path and that very promise, that very 
thing the Buddha is telling us is that we are free to pursue liberation. We are free to pursue Nibbana. We are free to self-improve, which happens when we grow in self-awareness. That means that we also have a responsibility. No one is going to do it for us. We are responsible for ourselves. That banner unfurls and it says no because any answers that we're looking for have to come from within. That's something that's very scary for most of us. You know, we want to be given answers. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to be. Tell me how I can be free, how I can be happy. What's the meaning of it all? And the Buddha, time and time again, tells us to turn inward to find those answers. That Dhamma as truth and Dhamma as practice all come from looking inward and seeing and understanding. And even outward expression of thought, word, and action, that requires our full participation are fully being present in the process. And we are responsible. We own our karma. We own what happens in that regard. Now, we're also constrained by nature and, and other factors of life, constrained by other people. In fact, when some philosophers would talk about other people as you know, being hell and whatnot, and talking about having the, the burden, the... Um, I'm forgetting the phrasing now, but uh, burden will do for now. The burden of freedom. It's that we, we live in this, this tension, this relationship with everything else. Now, Western philosophers talk about that in what seems like a negative sense. But in Buddhist terms, we would just talk about that as interdependence. That we, we share this relationship with, with everything around us. And that gives us responsibility as well, because... Not only do our actions affect ourselves, they affect others. I think about this a lot because now that I'm getting into therapy, I'm, I'm really thinking about how my words affect others. More so than I, than I did before, which is saying a lot because I think the majority of my precepts at this point are about how I speak. Uh, and yet, even when I'm good-intentioned, sometimes people get upset. Just last night, I was playing Cards Against Humanity. Not the most mature game you could play. Not even the most friendly of names. It's a fun game if you've got thick skin. And there are cards in there that are awful. Just the, the worst things. And, you know, all for the sake of humor, which I don't know what that says about humor, but... Uh, we were all sharing different cards, and, and, and everyone was hit. Whatever category, whatever aspect of your being that you think is important was brought under fire. Sexual orientation, ethnicity, and everything. And the Trail of Tears was used in one of the cards, and all sorts of stuff. And, and everyone was playing along just fine until someone played a card, and that someone was me, that had the term Auschwitz. And one of the guys there was Jewish. And he goes, hey, you can't use that card. I'm Jewish. And I'm thinking, I'm Hispanic. What about party Mexicans? What about the card for the, you know, the Trail of Tears? I have Native Americans in my family. I have this, you know. 
And I'm like, you can't have thick skin, or rather you can have thin skin playing this game. And yet, and yet, what I've learned is that when it comes to communicating with others, we can't control what they hear. So we have a responsibility to really think about our words. And so even though I'm playing a fun game and we're all laughing and having a good time, even still, even in those moments, am I someone who's living unawares, just throwing my words around willy-nilly, let's say? Or am I living as a Buddhist? That means that even in those moments, maybe caution is required. Maybe checking in to see that what I share with the world is kind, is pleasant, is harmonious, and perhaps not so idle. Maybe I should have been doing something else. Maybe I should have been in a corner, thinking quietly my existential thoughts. Or, it's a game. Don't know. But those are my thoughts. Now, responsibility gets into our actions as well. I think about small things, being on the freeway. Was I kind enough? Did I let the guy through? Did I just drive right past? I think about being on the streets, walking around right now, and various people in need. Do I help them? How much? Or, honestly, inactivity. I think about my own health, honestly, which is an odd thing to bring up, maybe in this conversation, but we often forget ourselves when we talk about compassion and our actions toward, you know, in the world. We forget about how we also have actions toward ourselves that we may or may not take. I think about my own inaction in the past few weeks, where I've been very, very stressed with school, and I haven't had a lot of time to come and visit a temple and to hear the Dharma, and I should have had time to practice the Dharma, but maybe not so much. And I start to feel the effects on my body. Very, very strong tension headaches built up into my neck, into my head. I've got some, some tightness that even my nerves are responding to now. I get these sharp little pains, and it's all stress-based. And the thing is, I know what to do. I know what makes it better which is practice. Finding times to go sit and meditate. And when you know it, 10 minutes into it, the pain starts to go away. I have been dealing with this terrible headache, these sharp pains, for probably five or six days now. I sat to meditate with you all today, and boom, it's gone. I could have just done that. But I was allowing inaction to rule my life. I was not taking responsibility for what I was experiencing. Now, that doesn't work for everything, of course. This works for the things that I was doing to myself, things that I was allowing to be there. There are some times where I'll sit and the, the headache stays, and that's fine. That becomes the meditation. Then it becomes a meditation on acceptance, on letting things be as they are. But sometimes it helps. Sometimes it helps and the sensations go away and I get to experience a nice peaceful moment or two or three.
Now, this next proposition to share with you all probably seems the least, the very least, Buddhist. And yet, I think it's important. The search for meaning. Now, for existential philosophers, this is the, the whole point of it all. That the world outside will never reveal meaning to you. No one's going to provide it for you. No thing's going to give it to you. There, there's no celestial being that can solve all the problems for you. Meaning is something that's subjective. Meaning is something that we define for ourselves. It's a part of that freedom and responsibility that existentialists talk about. Another way of thinking about meaning is thinking about purpose. From a Buddhist context, we live a bit of a, a purposeless existence, just going through lifetime after lifetime after lifetime of, of rebirth, of old age, sickness, and death, and it just keeps happening and happening and happening without any, any rhyme or reason to it other than cause and effect, other than karma. But then we get to a point in our lives where we stop for a moment and think, yeah, but what if? What if things could be different? What if my life could be different? I know that when I think about the, for lack of a better term, the spiritual life that I live, it really does come to that. It comes to wanting a life that's, that's different, that's, that's not the norm. Because I look out and see what the norm is. And it's not necessarily something that I want or want to participate in. I'm not any day now going to start watching a bunch of TMZ, if that show's even still on. Probably is. I have no idea. And I'm certainly not going to get caught up in the next consumerist thing. I happen to have a fairly new phone, and that was happenstance. I think I dropped my old one in the toilet or something, you know. But it seems like a lot of people do try to find their happiness, their fulfillment, their meaning, their purpose from without. I pretty early on decided to deviate from that. That doesn't happen for everyone. For me, I was about anywhere from, from 10 to 12 is around the time I was starting to think about these things and wanting a different kind of life. I had a weird response. I would go to places like a, a Catholic monastery or a mission and and see how the monks lived there, and something, something about it appealed to me. And when I started studying other traditions, including Buddhism, and I saw that there were people seeking out mysticism and transcendence, that again appealed to me. For some people, it takes uh, a little longer for that to happen. For some people, not at all. Mileage varies, and it doesn't really matter. It's not a competition. Certainly, there are other aspects of my life that other people are doing better than I am, so that's not really the point either. But there is this search for something. And when we find Buddhism, we find that we can live with purpose. And that purpose is to become self-aware. The purpose is to become generous and loving. The, the purpose is to break down the barriers that we've put up. The purpose is to grow in wisdom and liberating insight. That becomes the purpose. And we find that it's not something that's 
that's limiting or constraining, although to the outside world it often looks that way. When people see the kind of things that I've renounced to live what the Buddha called the holy life, it doesn't feel that way on the inside. It only feels that way to everyone else. When they see that I think about my words, when I think about my actions, when I think about my thoughts and what kind of seeds I'm planting, when I decide to live by the five precepts and to really commit to that and think about them every day, am I avoiding killing? Am I avoiding stealing? Am I avoiding sexual misconduct? Am I avoiding lies and hurtful speech? Am I avoiding, avoiding intoxication? It seems like a lot. When you, when you list it all down, when you write it all on paper, it seems like something very constraining. It feels like something that's an imposition. And yet, I find that when I do live the other way, when I, when I do lapse in the precepts, which has happened in my life from time to time, luckily nothing crazy, I haven't killed anyone, but, you know, usually it's in the form of intoxicants, usually it's in the form of telling some kind of lie or using malicious speech. Sometimes it might be maybe taking something from my wife's before asking permission. I'm sorry, I ate the strawberries, usually something like that. I find that, that I begin to suffer for it. Even my example about the, the stress headaches and, and the migraines were something that began to happen because I had stepped off the path. We don't often think about it that way, but it's something to think about in your own lives. What what improves your lives? What, what helps you and what's hurting you? The Buddha thought about this quite a lot, actually, where he even said to his disciples that he took his thoughts and looked at them and he examined the way he was living his life. He thought about his thoughts, his words, and his actions. And he broke them up into two categories, kusala and akusala, skillful and unskillful. And this is something that all of us can do in any moment in our lives. We can investigate and see what's helping us and what's hurting us. What's leading us toward what we desire in terms of purpose, in terms of fulfillment, in terms of liberation, and what seems like something we want, but when we actually give in to it, hurts us, damages us. Now, I'll end very, very briefly with one more proposition, which, uh, of the list, is the most Buddhist, which is awareness of death and non-being. That's something we talk about in Buddhism all the time, to the point that when we talk to non-Buddhists, they get kind of bummed out. And that's mostly because they don't want to think about death. Most people don't want to think about death, because death is very uncomfortable. The... the even hint of non-being is terrifying for a lot of people because all we've known so far is being. We think, and that's what we learn in Buddhism, that being or self might be something that was illusory to begin with, a permanent self. I was listening to a comedy podcast, another thing I do when I'm at home, and someone brought up a great example of this, of how it works. Because the host of the podcast with his brothers, they were talking about how they were as children and how they were now and how different they were. And, you know, the host had a realization. He goes, you know, I, I thought I was the same person this whole way through. And I thought all of us are. But in fact, you know what? We're all just James Bond. And 
I took a moment. I go, what does he mean by that? And he continued. There's a different actor playing James Bond all the time. Every few years, it's a different actor. We all think it's the same guy. And sure enough, he's right. We're all James Bond. I mean, I hope I'm Daniel Craig, but maybe I'm Sean Connery. I don't know. But in every moment, every moment, we're someone different. Playing the same part, but someone different. We all think that we're this, this person that continues throughout, but yet we're always changing. We always risk non-being, and we're always experiencing non-being, because the moment we go into the next, it's someone new, it's someone different. And if we can understand that, accept that, appreciate that in this very moment, then we realize that death, the, the final non-being there, might not be so final, and it might not be so different than one moment to the next. It's just more non-being. It's more non-self. I hope I didn't bum you out with that. You know, the, the thing is, as time goes on, I am both less scared about dying and, and more so. And it's something I think about, you know. Uh, I think it's because for, for Buddhists, we know that when we start the, the next life, we sort of have to start up the momentum again of, of whatever progress we've made on the path. You know, so whoever this next guy is in the next moment, he has some of the benefit of the practice I've done, but he's also got to start over again. In fact, something that Kusala says quite a bit is that every time is the first time. And uh, it's something that, that we experience, but when we die, we're going to experience it even more so. Someone in the future, whoever that person may be, wherever they may be, I hope they find the Dharma because it's been helpful to this person. That next person might have whatever good karma I've built up, but I don't know. Will they find the Dharma? Hopefully it still exists. All right, I'm going to end there because I'm only going to get more depressing from there, I think. Yeah, let's, let's not be existentialists. I mean, I might go get coffee later and I might say, what, it's the point of it all. But hopefully I won't. And, and hopefully I can, I can stay optimistic because in truth, the Dharma is optimistic. Every aspect of it is a promise that we can do and be better. That we can be liberated and that we are responsible for that liberation that it's within. And every single one of us, we have that capacity. We have that promise that's seeking to be fulfilled. All right, I'll end there. Thank you. <laughs>